You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's spring 1854 at Fort Humboldt, a military outpost on the northern coast of California. An army captain sits at his desk in his officer's quarters, busying himself with his favorite pastime, a bottle of whiskey. There's little else for a man to do at Fort Humboldt, save for making trips to the nearby town of Eureka for gambling, dancing, and women. But the captain isn't interested in any of those things. He misses his wife, Julia, and their recently born son, He's also racked with pain, plagued with nearly constant migraine headaches. The whiskey passes the time, but it also eases his suffering. The captain is just about to pour another drink when there's a knock on the door. Uh, just a moment, please. The captain quickly hides his glass and stows the bottle away in his desk drawer. Drink is permitted at Fort Humboldt, but the captain has a tendency to overindulge. And recently, his commanding officer put him on notice. No more booze or else. He buttons up his uniform and straightens his hair before calling out, Come in. The door opens, revealing Lewis Cass Hunt. Outranked, the captain quickly stands at attention. At ease, captain. What can I do for you, sir? Have a seat. Yes, sir. I'm here on behalf of Colonel Buchanan. The colonel is deeply disappointed in your conduct. My conduct? The colonel gave you plenty of chances, captain. You've ignored his warnings every step of the way. With respect to the colonel, I've done nothing improper. I've hardly strayed more than 100 yards from my quarters in weeks. You came to the pay table on Sunday last wet as a whistle. When I have nothing to do, sir, I get blue and depressed, and, and I have a natural craving for drink. But it has not interfered with my duties. My men are well cared for and well prepared should the need arise. Your resignation will be accepted at once, Captain. I would like to discuss this with Colonel Buchanan. There is nothing to discuss. If you do not resign, you'll face a court-martial. Despondent, the captain sinks back in his chair. His head falls into his hands. After a long pause, he reaches for a pen and paper. He scribbles out a letter of resignation and hands it to Hunt. Uh, I do not want my wife to know the circumstances. The colonel will be discreet, Captain. And so will I. The captain had served America with distinction in the Mexican-American War and was well-positioned for an illustrious military career. But like so many men of his era, alcohol beset him with troubles. But the captain did not give up. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he volunteered to fight for the Union, eventually rising to the rank of General-in-Chief, the head commander of the U.S. Army. He led Union forces in a string of critical victories over the Confederacy that ultimately resulted in a Union victory. After the war, General Ulysses S. Grant rode his fame and popularity all the way to the White House. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying, that's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost. And recently, they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com elections. 
That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. Throughout Grant's career, he struggled with personal demons. He had failed many times in his life as a farmer, a bill collector, a real estate man, and finally as an army captain. In his personal memoirs, Grant painted a different picture of the circumstances surrounding his resignation in 1854. Grant claimed that he resigned from the army voluntarily out of a desire to be with his family. But the accounts of Hunt and others suggest that his abuse of alcohol was the true culprit. Grant was an imperfect man, an imperfect general, and ultimately an imperfect president. But despite his shortcomings, President Grant did not forget that his election in 1868 was due in large part to the support of newly freed black Americans in the South, many of whom were able to vote in 1868 for the very first time, often at great peril to themselves and their families. Grant had campaigned on a promise to secure and protect the rights of former slaves and to forge a path for their future. But from the moment he was elected, the forces of opposition began closing in. As president, Grant would have to overcome more than his personal demons. He would have to confront the enemies of progress and fight through a seemingly never-ending onslaught of political scandals. And he would have to suppress the rise of violent forces committed to turning back the clock. This is episode 22, 1872, Greeley versus Grant, Progress Under Siege. It's a cold, dark night in November of 1868. President-elect Grant is on a train from Galena, Illinois, bound for Washington. He's accompanied by his family and a handful of aides and staff officers. The train roars down the tracks, moving at a rapid pace, faster than normal. That's because General Adam Badeau is in a hurry to get Grant and his family safely to Washington. Badeau has the rest of Grant's staff officers huddled at the rear of the train car. He speaks in a hushed tone, but with urgency in his voice. We must be on alert at all times, gentlemen. The General's itinerary is public knowledge. Even the route of this train has been published in papers all across the country. What would you have us do, sir? Until the General is safely settled in Washington, we must not let down our guard. I want all officers and aides on board this train armed and at the ready at all times. The general won't like seeing guns around his family. The general does not need to know. Keep the weapons concealed, but keep them within reach. But sir, I don't believe- This is an order. Do I make myself clear? Yes, sir. That will be all. As the men disperse, one of the staff officers pulls Badeau aside. Sir, is there something we need to know? Badeau makes sure he won't be heard leans in close and whispers. There have been threats on the general's life. Are these threats credible? He's received multiple letters. I've seen them with my own eyes. Does the general know? Of course he knows. What was his reaction? He does not believe he's in danger. The general has taken no precautions. He refuses to make changes to his itinerary, even though the entire country knows precisely where he'll be at any given moment between now and when we arrive in Washington. He pays these threats no mind at all. But I do. 
We must not forget the tragedy that befell this nation after such threats were made on the life of Mr. Lincoln. Yes, sir. Our duty is to protect the general, even from himself. Just after midnight on the trip from Galena to Washington, Grant's train approached a bridge about an eighth of a mile long with a stream some 70 feet below. It was a dark night with no moon, so dark that the train's conductor couldn't see that a switch had been left open at the approach to the bridge, nor could he see the mound of rocks piled up on the railway. The train crashed through the rocks and derailed, but fortunately the speed of the train, as ordered by Badeau, carried the car safely across the bridge and onto the narrow cut beyond before the car was overturned. All passengers were violently shaken. No one was injured, but had the overturn occurred 20 seconds sooner, the train would have fallen into the river. As General Adam Badeau would later recall, there was no doubt in the mind of any that the interruption had been planned, but it was thought wise to say nothing on the subject. Grant himself enjoined silence in regard to the circumstance, and his companions were very willing to comply, for crime is contagious, and to announce one attempt like this is to suggest another. In his book on Grant's presidency, Adam Badeau does not name Grant's would-be assassins. But it doesn't strain credulity to imagine that those responsible had either allegiance to, or at very least sympathy for, the ideology behind a growing threat in 1869 America, the Ku Klux Klan. The election of General Grant in 1868 was a signal to many in the country that change had come. The 13th and 14th Amendments had abolished slavery and guaranteed citizenship to former slaves. At the time Grant took office, the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed freedmen the right to vote, had just passed the House and was on its way to ratification. And in this spirit, almost immediately, Grant went to work for the former slaves. In April, he asked Congress to convene elections in the South, in the several states which had not yet been readmitted to the Union. Grant pressed Congress to establish new state constitutions that would secure the civil and political rights of all persons within their borders. In the years of the late 1860s, black Americans made up nearly 40% of the population in the South. This made former slaves a powerful voting bloc, powerful enough to upend the status quo and seize the reins of power. For many Southern whites, this was too much change, too fast. In his first term, General Grant would learn a hard lesson. As one abolitionist explained, the ratification only of constitutional amendments to guarantee equal civil and political rights to the colored people of the South will be of little practical value unless supplemented by adequate provision for their rigorous enforcement. Grant had been elected on a promise to secure equal rights for former slaves and to protect their interests. That promise earned him the praise of many in the North and the disdain of many in the South. As President, Grant would go to great lengths to make good on that promise, and as he did, the forces of opposition would grow in equal measure. In the summer of 1869, General Grant spent the majority of his time at his summer cottage in Long Branch, New Jersey. During that summer, the nation saw a precipitous rise in violence against former slaves at the hands of the KKK. In 1868, Grant had campaigned on the slogan, Let Us Have Peace. But as one abolitionist wrote, What does our president and general mean by singing peace, peace, while his friends are dying by midnight assassination? In the wake of the Civil War, abolitionists had advocated for economic assistance, education, and equal rights for former slaves. Many of these pillars had been achieved by the 14th and 15th Amendments and other Reconstruction laws. But for the majority of Americans, the national priority was not protecting former slaves. It was uniting the country under a policy of conciliation toward the South. One of the most vocal advocates of conciliation was a man named Horace Greeley, the Republican founder and editor of the New York Tribune. Greeley was adamant that true Reconstruction would not be possible without the voluntary cooperation of Southern whites, a group he called the better class. In Greeley's mind, the only way to get the Southern whites on board with Reconstruction was by granting full pardon to all Confederates and by letting the Southern states govern themselves. Greeley feared that continued federal intervention in the South would drive all Southern whites to the Democratic Party and ultimately increase violence against former slaves. Greeley firmly believed that amnesty, 
reconciliation, and non-intervention would give Southerners a voice in the Republican Party. He hoped these Southern Republicans would protect former slaves at the state and local level and work with moderate Republicans in the North on economic and political issues. Most abolitionists were appalled at Greeley's notions, seeing policies of conciliation as a recipe for one thing, danger for former slaves. Many abolitionists believed that the only way to curb white-on-black violence was exactly through federal intervention, and trusting the future of former slaves to former slaveholders was madness. But Greeley's Tribune was ubiquitous, and his ideas caught on in the South, especially in Tennessee and Virginia. In the summer of 1869, the Republican parties in those states split into two sects, a radical faction and a conservative one. By uniting with disaffected Democrats, the conservative faction dominated these states' elections. In September of 1869, one radical Republican leader wrote, The Tribune is doing us a vast amount of mischief. It is a regular imposter, a conservative guerrilla in radical ranks. On the campaign trail, the conservatives had promised to uphold the 14th and 15th Amendments and Congressional Reconstruction Laws. But once in power, they abandoned that pledge. In Tennessee, for example, the new conservative government dismantled the majority of public schools for freedmen. Tennessee would go on to introduce a poll tax to suppress the black vote and a vagrancy law that disproportionately hurt black laborers. If the Grant administration had been naive or asleep at the wheel, the events in Tennessee and Virginia woke them up. Mississippi and Texas had state elections in late 1869. The Grant administration intervened to ensure the success of the more moderate Republicans over the conservative factions. Still, many party regulars feared that what had happened in Tennessee and Virginia was an omen of what was to come in the presidential election of 1872. As the tensions widened inside the Republican Party, so too did KKK violence in the South. In March of 1870, the governor of North Carolina wrote to Grant, bands of armed men ride at night through various neighborhoods, whipping and maltreating peaceable citizens, hanging some, burning churches, and breaking up schools which have been established for the colored people. Witnesses to these atrocities, the governor said, refused to testify against the Klan for fear of reprisal. Grant responded to the governor's plea by sending federal troops to shore up North Carolina's measly force of less than a thousand soldiers. But the Klan's terror was not confined to North Carolina. In the state elections of 1870, Klan members worked to suppress the black vote and elect white Democrats. In the fall of 1870, the governor of South Carolina wrote to President Grant that the state election had turned violent. Colored men and women have been dragged from their homes at the dead hour of night and most cruelly and brutally scourged for the sole reason that they dared to exercise their own opinions on political subjects. I have within a few moments witnessed in my own office a spectacle that has chilled my blood with horror. The KKK called itself the Invisible Empire, but it might be said that by 1870, the Klan was hiding in plain sight. There were thousands upon thousands of groups spread out across nearly every county in the South. As North Carolina's governor explained, this organized conspiracy is in existence in every county of the state. It is believed that its leaders now direct the movements of the present legislature. This KKK terror campaign had been effective in the various state elections of 1870. Though six black candidates were elected to Congress in southern states, four of whom were former slaves, the Republican congressional majority was weakened by Democratic gains in states like New York, Indiana, Missouri, West Virginia, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. And it seemed the election of black congressmen only intensified the backlash. Many concerned citizens urged Grant to take action. Abolitionist Wendell Phillips wrote, There is still a state of war with the South. Let General Grant lay his hand on the leaders in the South, and you will never hear the Ku Klux again. In June of 1870, at the urging of General Grant, Congress established the Justice Department, led by Attorney General Amos T. Ackerman. The task before Ackerman's new Justice Department was colossal, to enforce compliance with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, to take on the KKK, an organization that had, according to General Grant, a single purpose, to deprive colored citizens of the right to bear arms and of the right to a free ballot, to suppress schools in which colored children were taught, and to reduce the colored people to a condition closely akin to that of slavery. In January of 1871, Grant received another letter from the governor of South Carolina, 
warning Grant that the KKK was lording over the South in what the governor called a reign of terror, continuing, few Republicans dare sleep in their houses at night. So in February 1871, Grant fought back. He ordered federal troops to South Carolina and pledged that they would remain there for the duration of his administration. Their commander, Major Lewis Merrill, worked in conjunction with the Justice Department to recruit federal attorneys and judges to prosecute Klansmen who violated the law. It was the first time in American history that the federal government prosecuted private criminal acts over the jurisdiction of local and state governments. During this time, the 42nd Congress was in recess, but Grant urged them to convene an emergency session in early March. In a letter to the Speaker of the House, Grant wrote, If the attention of Congress can be confined to the single subject of providing means for the protection of life and property, I feel that we should have such legislation. Democrats were fierce in their opposition, fearing that the true aim of Grant's agenda was not protecting former slaves, it was establishing Republican dominance in the South. As one Democrat congressman said in a speech, many of you would rather see the president dictator today than to see the Democratic Party come into power and expose the outrageous acts your party has committed. The press was critical, too. The Chicago Times wrote that Grant was the chief of a Ku Klux Klan more powerful than that of the South. Democrats nicknamed the president Kaiser Grant. But as the opposition mounted, many came to Grant's defense. Frederick Douglass wrote, If we stand by President Grant and his administration, it is from no spirit of hero worship or blind attachment to mere party, but because in this hour there is no middle ground. Grant is for stamping out this murderous Ku Klux as he stamped out the rebellion. Ultimately, the pro-Grant Republicans won the day in Congress. In April of 1871, Grant signed into law the Ku Klux Klan Act. The bill laid out harsh penalties for those who violated the 14th Amendment. If state governments refused to enforce the law, the Ku Klux Klan Act gave Grant the right to intervene, to declare martial law, suspend habeas corpus, and deploy troops to the South. The Ku Klux Klan Act came under heavy fire, especially in the South. But Grant was vociferous in his defense of the bill, calling it a law of extraordinary importance. The war against the Klan was multifaceted. Congress passed the law. The president provided troops. The Justice Department provided lawyers, judges, and federal marshals. Ackerman's charge to his department was this. If you cannot convict, you at least can expose, and ultimately such exposures will make the community ashamed of shielding the crime. Throughout this time, Ackerman's Justice Department brought over 3,000 indictments and well over 1,000 convictions against the Klan. Countless others went into hiding, testified against their own, or pled guilty to avoid lengthy jail sentences. This was Grant's war against the Klan, and it would last throughout the end of his first term. And by 1872, the Ku Klux Klan would be all but decimated. As Frederick Douglass would write, peace has come to places as never before. The scourging and slaughter of our people have so far ceased. But Grant's war against the Klan, though successful, had unintended consequences. It gave new life to a Democratic Party that had been on the ropes since the impeachment of Andrew Johnson in 1868. As Democrats began to unite around their opposition to federal intervention, Horace Greeley and the conservative Republicans began to unite in their opposition to Grant's presidency. If President Grant's posture towards the South strained the bonds of loyalty inside the Republican Party, his conduct as president would cause it to break. Fresh on the heels of his victory over the Klan, President Grant would face a slew of political scandals that would divide his party, weaken his presidency, and threaten to derail his prospects for a second term. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's a busy day at the White House. As is his custom, President Grant sits at his desk tirelessly working, poring over letters, dispatches, and official documents. An aide is close by his side, standing at the ready should the president require his services. Grant's work is interrupted by a sudden knock at the door. Engrossed with his work, Grant silently nods to his aide as if to say, get the door. The aide does as he's told and opens the door, revealing a servant standing in the hall. Pardon the interruption, sir. There's a visitor here to see the president. The aide runs interference. And who is this visitor? Oh, he's a stranger to me, sir. Well, then, I'm afraid the president is busy. What should I tell him, sir? Tell the stranger that the, that the president is out. Suddenly, Grant stops his work and calls out. No! Startled at his outburst, the aide and the servant share a curious glance as Grant rises to his feet. Do not tell him that. Mr. President, you said you did not want to be disturbed today. Yes, I did say that, and I stand by it. Then what message shall I send the gentleman, sir? Grant turns to the servant. Tell the gentleman I am engaged with my work and must be excused. Oh, yes, sir. Right away, sir. With that, the servant exits. Grant returns to his desk and immediately dives right back into his work. After a moment, the aide approaches. Mr. President? I am quite busy. Pardon me, but why not make an excuse, sir? Surely you of all people can be forgiven for that. Grant stops his work. I never lie for myself, and I do not want anybody to lie for me. Do I make myself clear? The story of Grant refusing to tell a lie to a visitor is perhaps apocryphal. Even so, the story brings into focus an interesting dichotomy. Ulysses S. Grant, a man known for his uncompromising honesty, saw his presidency engulfed by corruption, graft, and political scandal. The explanation, at least in part, might be found in a quote about Grant from one of his childhood friends who wrote, He thought every man as sincere as himself. If Grant was honest and sincere... Many in the orbit of his presidency were not. Yet Grant was a trusting man, and he himself would later write, I have made it the rule of my life to trust a man long after other people gave him up. Grant's first term was a preamble to what Mark Twain would later dub the Gilded Age, a period of rapid growth and change in the economy, technology, government, and culture. The term refers to the gilding of cheaper metal with a thin layer of gold. But with the good came the bad. Rapid growth also brought with it unprecedented corruption and questionable ethics. Federal patronage, a practice where a politician, after winning an election, gives government jobs to his supporters, friends, and relatives as reward for their support, dated back to the days of Andrew Jackson and his so-called spoils system. From there, federal patronage grew into something of a Washington pastime. For many, the term federal patronage was a euphemism for another word, bribery. The practice had thrived under Andrew Johnson's administration, and the trend continued under President Grant. As Grant's Attorney General Amos Ackerman wrote, the real vice of the present system is the patronage of members of Congress. Many of them think that their business here is not to make laws, but to make appointments. Grant had made some efforts to change the system, though. In October of 1870, he had told Congress, there is no duty which so much embarrasses the executive and heads of departments as that of appointments, nor is there any such arduous and thankless labor imposed on senators and representatives as that of finding places for constituents. With the help of Congress, Grant had even created the first-ever Civil Service Commission, a government watchdog charged with the task of reform. Not surprisingly, the biggest opponents to civil service reform were in Congress. Federal patronage was Congress's biggest piece of leverage in Washington. According to Ohio Congressman and future President James Garfield, many of Grant's biggest supporters were furious at nods to reform. Garfield wrote, Grant must back down or offend his defenders. For the most part, Grant did back down. In his heart of hearts, he was no true reformer. Of the federal patronage system, he would later write, You cannot call it corruption. It is a condition of our representative form of government. And yet if you read the newspapers and hear the stories of the reformers, you will be told that any asking for place is corruption. Throughout Grant's first term, the Republican Party was standing on shifting sands. 
While Grant carried forward the torch of equal rights and sought to finish the job of Reconstruction, conservative Republicans like Horace Greeley, the editor of the Tribune, began to distance themselves. Though it might sound like a misnomer to the modern ear, these conservatives would call themselves the liberal Republicans, and this budding faction would turn on Grant in the election of 1872. But the liberal Republicans were not the only emerging faction in the Republican Party. Grant's first term also saw the rise of a new breed of Republican, the Stalwarts, a faction of largely pro-business, pro-establishment, anti-reform Republicans. So as the liberal Republicans began to turn away from the Republican Party, Grant needed the Stalwarts in his corner. Though the Stalwarts were less driven by ideology than the radical Republicans, the Stalwarts were largely suspicious of Southern power. Like Grant, many Stalwarts believed that the Democrats were trying to reverse the outcome of the Civil War. This made the Stalwarts invaluable allies to the Grant administration. And one of their leaders was a New York congressman named Roscoe Conkling. In the early 1870s, there were two major Republican power players in New York, two senators. Reuben Fenton, a leader of the newly formed anti-Grant faction, the Liberal Republicans, and Roscoe Conkling, a leader of the Stalwart faction. There was no doubt which camp Grant was in. Grant said of Conkling, he has the greatest mind that has been in public life since the beginning of the government. Grant's son would write, Conkling and my father loved each other. They were devoted, and Conkling's devotion was quite unselfish. For this loyalty, Grant gave Conkling a massive reward. Grant appointed a man named Thomas Murphy as the customs collector of New York. Murphy was a Conkling man. His appointment gave Roscoe Conkling control over the New York Custom House, a lucrative enterprise with plenty of available patronage jobs that could be used like bargaining chips. Fundamentally, Murphy's appointment made Conkling the king of New York politics and allowed him to command hundreds of well-paying jobs in New York, jobs he could dangle over the heads of potential supporters. Grant's motivations in the appointment were not entirely unselfish. As always, New York was a key electoral state, not to mention the New York state elections were in November of 1871, and it was important to Grant that stalwart Republicans loyal to him favored well in the state election. But after Grant tapped Murphy, Conkling's nemesis, Senator Fenton, tried to block Murphy's appointment. As the New York Times reported, Senator Fenton and his friends viewed Murphy's nomination as a direct blow at them. The Times went on to report, On both sides, the contest at Washington has been conducted without the slightest possible reference to the wishes and welfare of this city, or even the welfare of the Republican Party. The whole affair has narrowed down to a struggle for advantage between the two New York senators. When the Senate convened an executive session to debate Murphy's nomination, Fenton went on the attack. He produced newspaper articles outlining Murphy's unsavory past, including his shady business dealings during the war. Conkling fired back. He stood before the senators and proclaimed, It is true that Thomas Murphy is a mechanic, a hatter by trade, that he worked at his trade in Albany supporting an aged father and mother and a crippled brother. And while he was thus engaged, there was another who visited Albany and played a very different role. Conkling then produced evidence that showed Senator Fenton, as a young man, had stolen $12,000, the equivalent of nearly $200,000 today. By producing court documents that proved Fenton's illicit behavior and exposing his hypocrisy, Conkling successfully parried Fenton's attack. Murphy easily won the nomination. But after the incident, a publication called The Nation attacked Murphy still, calling him a hack politician unfit for any trust. The Nation was, at least to an extent, not far off the mark. After Murphy's appointment, communications between Murphy and the White House showed that federal patronage was alive and well. One message to Murphy from Grant's personal secretary read, My only desire is to see you distribute the patronage of your office as to render the most efficient service to the country and the cause of the administration. According to newspaper reports, at a private meeting in November of 1870, Grant thanked Murphy for his efforts to secure the success of the Republican ticket in the late campaign in New York. It's worth mentioning that the source of this story was the New York Tribune, founded by liberal Republican leader Horace Greeley. Regardless, the facts show that Murphy stacked the New York Custom House with men loyal to Roscoe Conkling. Grant defended Murphy as a man of honesty and zeal, but in the end, because of political pressure, Murphy was forced to resign under a cloud of suspicion. Murphy's replacement, though, was no more palatable to Grant's opponents. He tapped Chester Arthur, a prominent lawyer and future president. 
Arthur continued business as usual, and for his efforts, he earned a fat salary, $50,000 a year, over $900,000 in today's dollars. Horace Greeley called Chester Arthur Tom Murphy under another name. Ultimately, Congress would investigate the New York Custom House, which many suspected Grant had set up as a tool to influence the outcome of the 1872 presidential election. At the congressional hearings, the most damning testimony came from none other than the infamous newspaper man Horace Greeley. Greeley claimed that roughly 100 employees at the Custom House had been jettisoned in favor of men loyal to Conkling. The New York Custom House ring, as it came to be called, was the first in a long list of political scandals that ensnared the Grant administration. Grant was never personally implicated, but many of the scandals reached into the upper echelons of his administration. Grant's vice president, Schuyler Colfax, had accepted stocks as part of the Credit Mobilier scandal, a scheme to siphon off profits made from the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Grant would defend Colfax's integrity, but in the end, Colfax would be forced to step aside in the upcoming election of 1872. The seemingly never-ending onslaught of scandals marred Grant's reputation, and it added fuel to the fire burning in the liberal Republican faction. These liberal Republicans were already frustrated by Grant's Reconstruction policies and what they perceived as his limp attempts at pushing for civil service reform. By the summer of 1872, liberal Republicans were tired of what they called Grantism, a term that became synonymous with corruption. So in early May 1872, the liberal Republicans held a convention in Cincinnati, Ohio. On the sixth ballot, they selected their presidential nominee, Horace Greenlee. The convention chose Missouri Governor B. Gratz Brown to be Greeley's running mate. Greeley was a controversial choice. He was a novice politician who had only served in Congress for a brief time. Like many liberal Republicans, he was a fierce advocate for Southern conciliation and self-government, or as many Democrats called it, home rule. But Greeley was wishy-washy at best on one of the central tenets of the liberal Republican movement, civil service reform. It is perhaps ironic that Greeley, once a true friend to the abolitionist cause, was selected to lead a political movement that espoused honest government and in the same breath turned its back on the promises government made to black America. Greeley had once aligned with radical Republicans and had been an advocate of emancipation. But by 1872, Greeley had changed his tune. Among other things, he called black Americans a worthless race. Greeley presented a platform that called for the Southern states to reign supreme over the federal government, and it labeled the Ku Klux Klan Act as a gross example of federal overreach. President Grant was disturbed by the platform, and he wasn't alone. The famous abolitionist Wendell Phillips wrote, Liberal Republicanism is nothing but Ku Klux Klanism disguised. Even some liberal Republicans were disturbed by Greeley's nomination. One of them from Ohio wrote, That Grant is an ass no man can deny but better an ass than a mischievous idiot. Grant, too, held a low opinion of Greeley, writing to a senator, Mr. Greeley is simply a disappointed man at not being estimated by others at the same value he places upon himself. He attaches to himself the fawning, deceitful, and dishonest men of the party. In early June of 1872, the Republican Party held its convention in Philadelphia. When Grant's name was put before the delegates, the PAC convention erupted in raucous applause. He was nominated unanimously. His vice president, Schuyler Colfax, marred by his connection to the Credit Mobilier scandal, declined re-election. In his place, the convention chose Massachusetts Senator Henry Wilson, a man with a reputation for being above board. The platform stated that Grant's glorious record of the past is the party's best pledge for the future. A month later, in July of 1872, the flailing Democratic Party convened its national convention. Democrats had still not fully recovered from the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Grant had trounced their nominee in the election of 1868, and public support for Democrats was waning. And so the Democrat delegates did something truly unexpected. They joined forces with the liberal Republicans and nominated the Greeley-Brown ticket. It was an unusual choice. Greeley had been a ferocious opponent of Democrats. He once famously said, All Democrats are not horse thieves, but all horse thieves are Democrats a familiar refrain that has been echoed in one form or another for generations in politics. Many Democrats were gobsmacked at Greeley's nomination. One prominent New York lawyer wrote, this is the most preposterous and ludicrous nomination to the presidency ever made on this continent. Even the chair of the Democratic convention called Greeley's nomination a stupendous mistake, difficult to comprehend. 
Still, the chairman encouraged the delegates to rally behind the Greeley-Brown ticket. Outlandish as it seemed to many, Greeley had a legitimate chance of winning the Electoral College, but only if he could siphon off just enough Republican votes and only if Democrats supported him unanimously. As one prominent Democrat explained, if the Baltimore Convention puts Greeley in our hymn book, we will sing him through if it kills us. With the unholy alliance between the liberal Republicans and the Democrats intact, Greeley would take his message directly to the people. In a stark break from precedent, Greeley would make hundreds of speeches and launch what was arguably one of the most aggressive political campaign tours in American history. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her Half of History is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Icebergs, jagged rocks and rocky straits, mutinies, misfortune, and broadside battles. There are more tales of the sea than survivors to tell them. But the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is doing a good job, and you can listen to all episodes of that podcast plus many others, including American Elections Wicked Game, without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is one of my favorites from last year, a podcast about the greatest mishaps, misfortune, and misadventures of the sea. You'll hear stories of corruption, greed, bad intentions, and just plain horrible decision-making that resulted in some of the worst maritime disasters from all over the world. And some of these are more recent than you think. All episodes are ad-free, including bonus content and more, at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. For President Grant, Horace Greeley's nomination was a cause for concern. Grant feared that a Democrat victory in 1872 would, in essence, turn back the clock to before the Civil War and damage the progress the country had made with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Grant wrote, It would have been better never to have made a sacrifice of blood and treasure to save the Union than to have the Democratic Party come in power now and sacrifice by the ballot what the bayonet seemed to have accomplished. Grant believed the surest path to victory was to follow in the tradition of George Washington and stay out of the political fray. In July of 1872, he wrote to his supporter, Senator Roscoe Conkling, My judgment is that it will be better that I should not attend any convention or political meeting during the campaign. It has been done, as far as I remember, by two presidential candidates. Grant was referring to Stephen Douglas in 1860 and his opponent in the previous election of 1868, Horatio Seymour. Grant wrote, both of them were public speakers, and both were beaten. I am no speaker, and I don't want to be beaten. Unlike Grant, though, Greeley was a gifted orator and wordsmith. As Harriet Beecher Stowe said of him, meek as he looks, no man living is readier with a strong, sharp answer. In a departure from the political norms of the day, Greeley attempted to wield his considerable talents on the campaign trail from the back of a train car, a mode of campaigning that would be repeated for decades to come. Greeley gave hundreds of speeches in front of thousands of spectators. In one 11-day period alone, Greeley gave over 200 speeches. At these events, Greeley advocated for Southern self-rule and conciliation. He took shots at Grant's reconstruction policies and attacked Grant's character, calling him a drunk, even though as president, Grant had largely remained sober. Greeley's invective, though, did not sway the minds of many. As one Grant supporter commented, if it be true that a beastly drunkard without a sense of decency can successfully conduct great campaigns, can win great battles, and can raise himself from insignificance to be a lieutenant general and president, what is the use of all this fuss about sobriety? In the end, Greeley's speeches did more harm than good. He was a gifted wordsmith, but he was prone to fits of passion, and his rhetorical style was off-putting to many, especially when it came to his racist notions. In September of 1872, future President Rutherford B. Hayes remarked, 
Greeley's foolish speeches must surely weaken him and destroy what chances he had. Among those put off by Greeley's public remarks was a determined, resourceful political activist named Susan B. Anthony, an advocate for women's rights and temperance. Horace Greeley was a strong opponent of Susan B. Anthony's life's work, female suffrage. After the Democrats nominated Greeley, Susan B. Anthony had remarked, the mountain has brought forth its mole. She was not an enthusiastic supporter of President Grant, in large part because of his history with alcohol. But as she told a reporter, I do not admire Grant and do not care to see a fast man at the head of the nation, but principles to me are more than individual character. So in November of 1872, as election day drew near, Susan B. Anthony was determined to vote her principles and vote against Horace Greeley, whether it was legal for her or not. It's November 1st, 1872. Susan B. Anthony walks into a barber shop in Rochester, New York, a woman on a mission. Three of her sisters follow her through the door. This barber shop doubles as a local polling center. A distracted young man in his 20s works the polling table at the back of the barber shop. Anthony calls out to him from across the room. Excuse me, is this the place where a citizen registers to vote? Confused, the young man calls back. Yes, ma'am, it is. What can I do for you? Without a word, Anthony makes a beeline for the registration table. What is your name, sir? Mr. Jones, Beverly Jones. Mr. Jones, I should like to register to vote. The young man's mouth falls slightly agape. He's unsure of what to say exactly. Anthony tries again. I said, I should like to register to vote. Yes, ma'am, of course, but as you know, only men have the right to vote in New York. Mr. Warner, the election supervisor, overhears their conversation. He saunters over quietly and observes from a safe distance. Tell me, Mr. Jones, are you familiar with the 15th Amendment? I am, ma'am. I am a citizen of this country, sir. Yes, ma'am, of course, but... As a citizen of this country, under the 15th Amendment, I believe I am entitled the right to vote. Jones, feeling helpless, turns to his supervisor, Mr. Warner. What shall I do, sir? This woman is asking to register. Supervisor Warner can't help but admire Anthony's moxie. So with a smile, he replies, Well, young man, how are you going to get around that? I suppose you'll have to register her to vote. Oh, not only me, sir, my sisters as well. Anthony's sisters offer politely victorious smiles. Well, yes, ma'am. Right away, ma'am. Several days later, on November 5th, Susan B. Anthony appeared at the polls and cast her vote for Ulysses S. Grant. But for that crime, she was arrested, tried, and convicted of illegal voting. After the judge issued her a fine of $100, Anthony told him, May it please your honor, I shall never pay a dollar of your unjust penalty. And indeed, she never did. The men who registered her were also convicted and spent five days in jail. Anthony appealed to President Grant to pardon the men, and Grant was more than happy to oblige. Susan B. Anthony had begged the Republican National Convention to endorse women's suffrage in their platform. Though she had been unsuccessful, thanks to her powers of persuasion, she did get something. The platform urged the men of the Republican Party to give respectful consideration to the rights of women. In return, Anthony had campaigned for President Grant. She had held a rally in New York in October, where a throng of women gathered in support of their president. It would be another 50 years before women would earn the right to vote with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. In addition to the backing of the suffragists, Grant also enjoys strong support from black Americans. Frederick Douglass actively campaigned for Grant, as did many black leaders and white abolitionists across the country. Wendell Phillips charged black Americans, vote every one of you for Grant. If Greeley is elected, arm, concentrate, conceal your property, but organize for defense. You will need it soon. Throughout the campaign, Grant remained confident he would win. When one of Grant's supporters expressed concern that Greeley might edge him out, Grant laid a map on the table and marked the states he believed he would win. Grant marked 31 of 37 states. As the concerned supporter would later explain, when the election came, the result was that Grant carried every state that he said he would, all 31 of them. Grant received nearly 56% of the popular vote, beating Greeley by 800,000 votes. No candidate had performed so well since Andrew Jackson in 1832, and with Greeley's measly 66 electoral votes, no candidate would perform as poorly for another 60 years. Greeley was devastated by the election. 
His life was already in shambles. He had been forced out as editor of the paper he founded, the New York Tribune. And on top of that, his wife, Mary Greeley, had passed away during the campaign. Shortly after the election, Greeley was committed to a mental hospital, where he would die some three weeks later. Because his death occurred before the presidential electors convened, Greeley's 66 electoral votes were divided between four Democrats. Out of respect, three electors cast their votes for Greeley, but Congress did not accept their votes. Greeley's death signified the end of the liberal Republican movement, but Democrat resistance to the Grant administration would only deepen during his second term. In the lead-up to the 1872 contest, Grant had survived a slew of political scandals and had emerged victorious. But during his second term, Grant's presidency would be undone by one of the biggest scandals in American history, the Whiskey Ring. This scandal would threaten the Republican Party's dominance, tarnish President Grant's legacy, and leave the door open for Democrats to once again seize the reins of power. This is Episode 22 of American Elections Wicked Game. 1872, Progress Under Siege. On the next episode, the election of 1876, after the Whiskey Ring scandal, Republicans cut ties with President Grant and turn instead to Rutherford B. Hayes. But with the election too close to call, Republicans strike a Faustian bargain. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.